0: The University of Central Florida, Office of Diversity and Inclusion, brings you Matters of Diversity with Dr. B. With your host, Dr. S. Kent Butler. And their guest, Dr. Jamie Bourne. And now, Dr. B.
1: What's Welcome to Matters of Diversity with Dr. B. It's great to have you all part of the conversation today. Today we're going to be communicating uh, about transgender appreciation today and um, there's a movement that's going forward that we're going to be talking about with Dr. Jamie Bourne, who uses the pronouns they and them. They received their PhD in counseling psychology from the University of Tennessee. We'll have to talk about that. I am from the University of Connecticut in Tennessee and Connecticut. Um, sometimes we, we have some issues with each other, especially when it comes to um, basketball. Dr. Bourne works as a licensed psychologist at the Counseling and Psychological Services, which is caps for those of you who don't know the long, long form. Dr. Boren's professional interest is in social justice and allyship, serving marginalized and underserved communities, especially in the trans, the LGBTQ, first-generation students, racial and ethnic minorities, and veterans. And so we'll get an opportunity to talk a little bit about that, but we're gonna stay focused on trans work today. So identity development, substance use, trauma, group therapy, and outreach, they are the group and workshop coordinator, liaison to LGBTQ and services, um, trans care team member, groups facilitated, trans and gender diverse empowerment, intersectional USO, and a very fun fact, and we'll talk a little bit about this, we'll see where it goes, has never missed an episode of Survivor. so. Uh, those of you who are out there who are Survivor fans. uh, We'll start off right there. Tell me, what is it about Survivor that has captured your attention so intently?
0: You know, believe it or not, I think we could spend like an hour just on that question alone. Um, For perspective, that show started when I was 11 years old, so it was kind of a very impressionable time for me. you trying to
1: make people feel old.
0: Yeah. No, no, no. Um, but yeah, it was probably a very impressionable time for me in general. But like, I just love the storytelling, the narrative of it all when as I was a young child, you know, um, it was just so cool to like see people who had these like larger than lives personalities, like competing in this show. And like as someone who had never had the opportunity to travel, someone who grew up like really low income, like I just love the adventure of it as well. Um, and it just like connected with me i'm a very competitive person as well so that kind of helps so is that, the,
1: yeah. is that the is that like the uh the makeup of the show i i have never watched one episode of hmm. survivor i'm gonna be honest with you i've seen it i know about it i see that it wins all these awards or was at the beginning of his his run what's the concept
0: uh well i can give you some good recommendations for seasons later um <laughs> but the concept is basically Uh, 16 to 20 people, um, put in this location, divided into what they call tribes, um, you know, and trying to, um, win a million dollars by being the last person standing. So every episode you'll see them compete in like these funky challenges. And then ultimately one person will get voted out until it gets down smaller and smaller. Um, and what I like about the show that was very unique for it at the time is when it gets, when you get to the end, when you get to the final two or final three, um, the winner is decided by the last group of people who are voted out. So like, you need to find a way, I love the social nature of it. You need to find a way to get rid of people, like get them to leave, but also make them want to vote for you to win a million dollars. And that's just like a a really cool concept, I think.
1: Excellent, excellent, excellent. So you find the competition, the key, has the individuals who, say it again?
0: and the social dynamics. So
1: have you been happy with the results of each season or are you, or would you have chosen others?
0: Um, I would say that some I'm more happier with than others. Um, A lot more of the earlier ones I was more happy with, but Survivor as a whole, why I could say, I could talk for so long about it is because it brings up like diversity issues in its own right. Um, So for instance, I would say at this point in Survivor, for instance, it's pretty rare to see women win. Um, and that I think says something about the general format and about like kind of implicit biases in general. Um, so yeah, there's, there's some issues there, um, but okay. there are a lot of like very likable, very rootable winners. Is that opinion.
1: because of implicit bias or what do you think the reason why?
0: It's complicated. Um, I would say part of it is like, For instance, I would say there's like pretty clear bias against like older women doing well on the show. For instance, if you're an older woman who makes it to the end of Survivor, you are very rare to get a lot of respect from other people because I think there's a lot of implicit assumptions on what like an older woman or especially someone who's like a mother or a grandmother, like what they're supposed to be like, the traits that they are supposed to espouse. If you are a very competitive woman. On survivor then you are read in a particular light which is generally negative you're seen as more cutthroat um you're seen as not like following the kind of the rules that you're supposed to be socialized into whereas if say it's a younger man who does the same thing it just means that he is um strategic
1: okay um has there ever been a transgender individual on the show
0: uh just one so far and that's actually kind of a that's kind of like a messy subject in general because it was someone who was actually outed while on Survivor by another player, so it led to like a really difficult um, situation. So
1: wow, what season was that?
0: Uh, season thirty-four.
1: Look at you! Wow, they up to
0: thirty-four. Uh, they just finished season forty. year oh uh, my Lord, Lord mercy. Yeah.
1: Wow. Yeah. So, so today we're having conversations that I kind of flubbed us in the in the. Um, in the title, um, coming in, but the Transgender Day of Visibility, mm-hmm. um, so we want to honor that and talk a little bit about um, what that means, especially what it means to the university here and how we can be a little bit more of a um, a community of individuals who who understand as well as affirm individuals who are here on our campus, and so. One of the things I would like to start our conversation off with, um, I always like having a healthy debate around pronouns. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that you are utilizing pronouns, they and them. Mm -hmm. And can you talk a little bit about that from your perspective? What is it uh, that draws you to them? And what would be the words that you would say to individuals who are still on the fence about um, the, the usage of pronouns?
0: Oh, yeah. So I love that question. That's a pretty open-ended question, which I really like. Um, but for me, for me personally, like um, I identify as non-binary transgender, which means that as a person, like I don't identify as male or female. And I think internally, I never really have. I didn't necessarily have the language to describe that until much later on in my life, until I was in grad school, honestly. But it seems to be... Yeah,
1: the University of Tennessee, I think.
0: hmm Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, go ahead, move on. <laughs>
0: um, so, they, them pronouns for me are, I think, just more capture my personal experience of how I understand and how I express my gender. Um, so, for me, they're a very important thing. Um, I do think that it is very important to respect people's um, pronoun use because. It's basically a simple way, a very simple way for you to say, I see you and I validate your experience. Yes. Um, and at the end of the day, it doesn't cost anyone anything to like validate. It doesn't cost experience.
1: people anything at all? You don't think it costs anyone things?
0: I don't think so, no. Okay,
1: all right. So let me ask you a question. More really. to
0: gain than there is to lose.
1: Right, right. So let me ask you from the perspective of um, just the actual they and them in there. Uh, mm-hmm and with regards to how they, how it's been utilized in, in the English language
2: mm-hmm.
1: and how it has somehow in some regards in, such, in sentence structure, it throws people off, right? Because they they see it in the sentence and they think that it's out of place uh, for certain things. And I'm just throwing that out there. So, um, but I understand the concept of it because people like to argue that well, they and there is plural, well, it's not true. Um, is not plural because you can say they went to the store or they went to the store to get their umbrella that they left behind. So we get that it's not plural, but how it does linguistically work it was in grammar, it can throw things off. So I wonder what your thoughts or perspective is around that.
0: It can just be a little different for people at first. And I'd add like when something is different for us, regardless of the context, it tends to feel wonky. Like, we, okay. like uh, we want things to feel, I don't know, comfortable for us,
2: mm-hmm. um,
0: but like a lot of people in my community, like have like lots of years, decades, a lifetime of experience of feeling uncomfortable. So I think it's easier for you to feel uncomfortable with like getting pronouns right for a little bit. Than it is to have another to have a person in my community feel invalidated ongoing. right
2: right
1: so i
0: think that's what i would
1: so think. but i i i get that and i understand the invalidation piece i mean i'm so i'm 100 support of where you're going with this i i'm just um throwing out some things for clarity for folks yeah. um, and so when you look at it from that perspective you say uncomfortable would would it have been just as uncomfortable to because I I know that there are several usages of pronouns or additional words that have been kind of used to identify pronouns like key um, K I E and mm-hmm. her um, and those other things that are non-binary or don't have uh, or not genderized or however you you would utilize those terms. Mm-hmm. How come those are not gravitated towards as much as they and there is so um, what i'm saying is are you creating a controversy with the they and the there when you could use other words that would get the same um sentiment across
0: um i don't think so i mean at the end of the day i'm just trying to live my life you know yeah. um like you know as someone who uses these pronouns like i don't think that i am like creating like any kind of like issue for people in fact like I think they them pronouns are like more accessible for a lot of people because they are words that we use in our daily life like pretty mm-hmm. often whereas there are a lot of other pronouns that we, you could use and you could ask to use but like they're not necessarily as accessible in terms of language that people are like, familiar with but um, well, isn't that
1: the same th- but but in the same token isn't that the same thing you're saying about the use of the they in there And I'm not trying to stump you. I'm just asking that question. So,
0: no, I don't think so. Okay. Um, so, at the end of the day, like I'm someone who will, I will use whatever pronouns or someone that they ask.
1: Exactly. Right. Like
0: that's that's important. I think that that should be a. Key. So so I'm not so I'm not talking
1: about affirming. I'm talking about helping bring other people along who don't get it yet. Mm-hmm. That's really where I'm going with this.
0: Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't get it or understand, like my my first recommendation is always to practice and to work on oh, okay. yourself. Um, because I think that once you get some experience with trying out these pronouns, it actually is not that hard. Right. But there's often a lot of pushback from people. In my experience, you know, with me sharing my pronouns, there's a lot of pushback before people are willing to try. And I think okay. that's, that's an issue.
1: So when people have tried, mm-hmm. how long have you seen on average, people being able to kind of adopt it and understand it and get it right. So, you know, I'm quite sure people have missed missed it a couple of times in in, mm-hmm. in their conversations with you. How how long has it really been in, in your in your guesstimate that maybe someone has, um, you know, finally got it and, and is able to okay. kind of, you know, how you know what I'm saying, like the inner brain works to kind of know that it is, is, is understanding that. And it, you know what I mean? I don't even know if I'm saying it right, but
0: no, no. Um, well, first I think it depends upon the person. Um, mm-hmm. so I think it's normal for people to make mistakes. Like I make mistakes with people. I just being a part of my community does not make me like immune to right.
1: My- and you own the mistake, which is what people need to learn to do. It's exactly. That they can the move on.
0: Exactly. But, I do think that most people are able to get it right most of the time. Very mm-hmm. quickly, this has been my experience.
1: Yeah. So yeah, and it's just again, like it's like a restructuring of the brain um, to 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 really honor. So if you are really trying to be there with people, and I mean, you know, you know, as a counselor, we have to be there with individuals and and work with individuals, and so. In doing that, um, it should be fair game to be able to pick it up and, and move forward with that because you're being there um, with your in, in the counseling sense, you're you're there with your client, right? And mm-hmm. so you 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 pick up on those things and you and you actually start to to run. It's like learning a new song. Like you, you hear a new song on the radio, you may not get it the first couple of times that you've heard the song, but by the time you get to the third or fourth time you listen to it, you've got a, a sense of what those lyrics are, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I see it from that perspective. So we can move away from that. Um, and we don't have to stay on that for long, but so so what other ways can people be affirming in in your eyes um, to to individuals who are transgender?
0: Yeah, honestly, like one of the first steps that I think a person can take is to um, listen from an open perspective, right? Um, So unfortunately, like a lot of people in the transgender community, like, um, don't have a lot of supportive allies that they're aware of. So there can be something to be said for just being like a source of support and like listening and hearing a person's story without judging it. Yeah. You know? So I think that is always going to be a starting point. And that's not just true for the transgender community. I think that that's true in terms of allyship in general, which I think mm-hmm. is a very important area that mm-hmm. I like to focus on in my advocacy.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, but certainly listening. Another important step, is, I think, is for people to educate themselves, which is why I think today is a very important day. So it's Trans Day of Visibility. Um, which is a holiday focused on, you know, celebrating the lives and experiences of transgender people, but also educating yourselves on the issues that um, the community experiences. Mm -hmm. So I think personal education is is extremely important because a lot of those experiences of the community can go um, unnoticed um, if you're, you know, not a part of the community and don't have as much direct interaction with us. Um, And also I'd say that members of the community are often kind of put on um like put on put on the spot for speaking for the community and like understanding and like saying like what the needs are and issues are and I don't know that that's always fair to the level that it happens like um you know I'm happy to do that because that's like part of my job and part of my role and I take a lot of um I take a lot from that, but a Mm -hmm. lot of people maybe aren't so comfortable, like, speaking for an entire community of people.
1: Right, right, right. Well, I get that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I understand that wholeheartedly.
2: Yes. Um,
0: Yeah. Yeah. It it, it, it can be really hard and and mm -hmm. really taxing. And, like, at the same time, like, even though I love being an advocate for my community, like, I know my experience, Mm -hmm. and I know from, like, a research perspective, like, experiences from the community, but I can't speak to everyone's experience within this community because my other identities look a lot different from other people's. Yeah,
1: yeah. So what are some of the things that you think the University of Central Florida could do to be a little bit more inclusive?
0: Ooh. um, (laughs) "Ooh." That's great. That's a a great question. Um, I think I can start, can I start from the perspective like things that I see that are happening and that are doing well? Sure, Um,
1: I mean, you can do anything you want. This is your show, this is as much as mine today.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, so I think there's a number of things that the university does pretty well. So those are in terms of like um, uh, the discrimination, or, well, non-discrimination policies of the university are pretty, pretty comprehensive, and I like that. That's very helpful mm-hmm. for people. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a number of um, specific agencies and resources available to these students. So, for example, you know, I work at CAPS. We have a whole trans care team that I co uh, co lead and do support groups for the community as well,
2: mm-hmm. um,
0: which is a wonderful resource. I know LGBTQ plus services is a wonderful resource, well for the LGBTQ plus community as a whole, but mm-hmm. you know, um, in this case, for our trans students. Mm-hmm. Um, I think overall, it is a pretty good place for students to go to school if you are part of the trans community. Um, But there are things that the university could certainly do better in a number of ways. So for instance, um, I would like it if there were more kind of dedicated space and I I need to really think on this by what I mean, but more dedicated space to actively like learn what it means to be a part of the community. Okay. So like, for instance, I do these you know talks and I do presentations, but I feel like a lot of people are just not exposed still. And for a, a higher education um, facility that really values diversity and equity- How do you
1: scale it? How do you scale it so that other people are able to have the same- Yeah, yeah to that's... have
0: like these dialogues yeah. and to learn. I think that's important. Mm -hmm. Another thing is just from like a resource perspective, you know, um, this is a great time for some students in that, um, a lot of the students who I work with in counseling, for instance, have never had the opportunity to go to therapy, for instance, because maybe their family wasn't uh, accepting of that. Maybe their family didn't know much about mental health. Maybe their family was pretty transphobic. Yeah, so it can be a great space to like start to engage in services. Maybe there's some underlying mental health concerns or maybe just figuring out your gender identity is a really difficult task for some people. So, like some things that I do with that are I just provide individual and counseling. I also am able to help with the process of letters of support for like HRT, which is hormone replacement therapy, and helping students in that process is, is a really important thing. Right. Um, I would, I, something that we've been advocating for from the university is like movement toward like being able to support students with like surgery letters. That's not something we're able to do. Can okay, yeah. you
1: go back and now you have to tell me what that means? What's the surgery? So the
0: surgery is letter on? is basically uh, saying that um, helping the student to connect with like um, what we call top surgery or bottom surgery. So for instance, if you are, if you identify as a trans male or even a non-binary person, maybe... You have some dysphoria, gender dysphoria around having um, breasts, so um, it would be a surgery to help with that. Um, so it's basically any kind of surgical procedure for the LG for okay. the trans community. Excellent, thank you know? Yeah. So that's something that we've been advocating for, to be able to have kind of university support, university administration support. To
1: We'll we'll touch base on this a little bit more, too. I want to ask you about it from a health perspective, Mm -hmm. um, um, especially when you're talking about physical health or you're talking about going to a medical doctor and things along those lines. But Mm -hmm. I don't want to throw you off. Let's go back to that one later.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I don't know. I just it would be nice to see even courses that like have a specific trans kind of focus to them. Okay. Um, I think those are pretty rare. If they come up, it's like part of like a special topic for like a course. Um, you know, like I would love to be part of like, you know, even teaching like a trans health focus class that's all focused on that. Like that would be wonderful. Um, you know, um, so it's a lot of things, or even like another kind of aspiration of mine is like um, a trans and gender-focused um, um, conference. Um, another thing that's interesting to me is this. This is kind of a larger issue. Certainly, it's trans-connected. You know, I think it's lovely that we have like a women's and gender studies minor. We also have that at like the graduate level in terms of a certificate. But there's no women's and gender studies major or program at the university, and I think that that would mean a lot for like not only my community, but for like the whole women's and gender studies kind of area as well. So those sorts of things. That's
1: beautiful. That's beautiful. So do you see it happening like in in a, in a, in a good pace of time? I don't know how to kind of put that in there. Do you do you see the university being able to move towards doing these things, or do you see actions happening to make that happen um, in a pretty reasonable time period?
0: Yeah, um, I, I do. Okay. What I wanna say is like, well, I think there's areas for growth. Like, that's why I started with you know what the university does well, because I think there's a lot that does that the university does well, and I do see an overall kind of systemic value of diversity as a whole, and you know, uh, support for the transgender community. There are certainly gaps, which I think do, could be addressed. But I do think the university really does value the community and puts, you know, support in that direction. So I do think things are moving.
1: Excellent, excellent. So, uh, so what are some other things that you think? you know, like you talked about there being courses and and things along those lines, the Office of Diversity and Inclusion does different programming and things that are going on. How could the Office of Diversity and Inclusion be supportive from what you don't see happening now? Yeah,
0: yeah. Like, I mean, I would love there to be because I know because I've done a number of those uh um, series or one off, like one day long programs. So I would love there to be like a specific series that focuses like legitimately just like on transgender issues
2: Mm
0: -hmm. um that would be absolutely fascinating wonderful to be a part of like talking about that developing any any step along that direction for instance i know that trans issues come up in like the safe zone trainings um i help facilitate part of that um i know lgbtq plus services does too but like Mm -hmm. something that's even more specific on trans identity and um, trans issues. So for example, like I'm just like thinking off the top of my head, like a series could look like really a a first part identifying what does it mean to be part of the transgender community. So differentiating concepts like sex, gender, sexual orientation, gender presentation. Uh, Another one could be on like mental and physical health impacts um, from being a member of the community and kind of the system that we live in right now um you could spend a whole session on violence and like the impact of violence um, on trans people and trans lives um and no session even on um then like allyship and um like uh intervention like where do we go from here and like that's a series right there just kind of off the top of my head i'm listening
1: to you and this is being recorded so um we know that we know who to tap into if um, these things need to be developed and
2: mm-hmm. and
1: things of that nature. So you see where I'm going with that, right? Yeah. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so uh, when I again, you know, this is a really huge day, uh, transgender day of visibility uh, in regards to helping people to recognize uh, the community, but also to embrace the day what are some ways that people can celebrate this day and and actually give um some homage to um what was what this day stands for
0: Mm -hmm. it's very broad again um so i'm not going to have like one specific answer but there's a lot that you can do so um for me, a way that I personally celebrate is just like sharing sharing a little bit about my story and my experiences with people that are part of my life, right? Um, right, and reaching out to my friends who are part of the community. So if you are listening to this and you're out there and you're part of the community, I hope that there's something that you're able to do just to feel personally empowered. So that could mean sharing your story, yeah. that could mean just doing something to take care of yourself. Um, I think that those things are valid into themselves if you're not a member of the community, I encourage you to like um, do something to educate yourself about the history of the community. So, you know, there's a lot of resources available out there. You know, simply start by searching trans history and that's that's a starting Yes, yeah, because there's
1: a lot of misnomers about trans history. A lot of people think it just came around in 2004 no. or something like
0: that. Yeah, and something that I'll add to that, you know, um, just because I think that this is important to be mentioned Uh, you can't separate trans history from the lgbtq plus movement or history there so for instance in a lot of ways a lot of ways not all of them the trans the lgbtq plus history kind of like transformed or um really grew in uh with the stonewall riots in Mm -hmm. 1969 and the the people behind those riots are um predominantly um, African-American trans women. Yes. Um, so like that history is so entwined with the whole LGBTQ plus rights movement. And that's not mm-hmm. something that's really talked so about. So, why,
1: why do you think um, those so, things get swept under the rug?
0: I think that those things get swept under the rug. I, it, it Again, it's a complex answer, but um, I think there are social, political, and economic reasons why. So for instance, um, the LGBTQ plus movement has um, kind of this synergy behind it to like really value and like advance the lives of anyone who's a part of the community. But um, I think there are times politically where members of the community are able to use positions of power or privilege to advance certain pieces of an agenda at the expense of others. So okay. if you are, if you experience um, oppression based on one of your identities, it is easier to make progress than if you experience oppression based on a lot of your identities. So for instance, mm-hmm. black trans women have experienced some of like the most oppressive like health outcomes, victimization experiences and have less voice in the overarching LGBTQ plus community. Yeah. Um, and that talks- and that,
1: about- that's, that's really interesting because and. In, in- what you hear a lot is that uh, within the, the LGBTQ community, there are, there, you would think that there will be less isms, but they, they kind of mimic.
0: You would hope, but they, they, they permeate. And yes, that is a great word. I think they mimic other spaces, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, there's, um, you could say, hierarchies of power and privilege within the community that often go untalked about. Right. Um, you know, I know that the LGBTQ plus community as a whole has, um, there are pretty profound mental health impacts for people in the community. And -hmm. what's important to be said there that those are not like intrinsic, uh, intrinsic in that, like, being a member of the community doesn't cause you to have, say, higher rates of depression or higher rates of anxiety, thoughts of suicide. It's being a member of the community in a society that is oppressive, that causes that. So very external things that cause these internalized things. So um, it's not lost on me that in the trans community, the current rate is um, for rate of um, uh, suicide attempts is nine times on the general population. And it's even higher amongst, you know, um, communities of color and the trans community. So. so has
1: there been studies with people who um, were not successful um, at those attempts um, to, to see what was, what was the drive behind those attempts in the first place?
0: Um, I can't cite specific ones off the top of my head, but but yes, I think trans research is like a growing area. Um, so there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff around, around like um, mental health and societal impacts and, and all of that. Um, mm-hmm. But I can't cite specifics off the top of my head. Um, I think it's pretty clear to me and something that I talk a lot about with my clients is how... Um, the impacts that they experience from, say, experiencing verbal harassment, experiencing rejection from peers, bullying, family rejection. Um, that really, I think, in a lot of ways, underscores those mental health impacts that we see. Like if you are not being supportive and you're literally hearing the message that you don't matter, or that you're not valued. Right. Makes sense to me, like why, why that impact would be there.
1: So you know, in the black community, uh, there's a lot of times when um, you have individuals who who feel as though when they're going through it, they that people are not necessarily understanding or, or or thinking that they're having these issues, right? Uh, and so they kind of like, especially like going to the doctor or doing this or doing that, or especially when it comes to counseling. Sometimes it kind of presents as you should only go to a black counselor if you're a black client. Mm -hmm. Has that kind of a sentiment or history been a part of the trans community that you can only go to a trans uh, counselor as opposed to someone who um, is not or, you know, and all those issues of safety and all those other things, you don't want people to do harm. But what's been the sentiment from that perspective?
0: I would say to an extent. Um, I think um, more than anything, like if you're a member of the trans community, um, especially like it's very important to have like some sort for your therapist to have some sort of visual indicator that they're a supportive person. And why I say that is, um, I think that if there were more known like trans providers, we would probably see that same thing. Like people like adamantly wanting to be seen by a transgender person or like feeling like they can know their, their stories more. But the truth is, I don't know that there's a lot of us. Certainly, there are, you know, multiple trans and you know non-binary gender diverse providers, but you know, it's a small pool. Regardless of where you are, you know, we're right in Orlando here, and it's still a small pool. So, like, imagine living in a rural area. Like, there's just not going to be that person, probably.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, I'm honored that I get to serve my community like this. I would not choose any other job. But, you know, um,
1: unfortunately... you find your caseload is really significantly challenged because of it?
0: Um, can you say that again?
1: Your caseload, because of the fact that this is your specialty area or something along those lines, is, is do you find that because of it that you are overburdened?
0: I wouldn't. I wouldn't say so, um, and and it, it's complicated because um, I keep on saying that a lot. But I think social issues are complicated, so I don't mind that I say it's complicated so much. Um, but you know, I, I consider myself a generalist. So by that I mean I'll, I I consider myself prepared to serve pretty much any issue that comes in, comes through my door, right? Mm -hmm. I love serving my community. Like, that's my Mm -hmm. favorite thing. So like, not only do I love that, but like I'm called to do that. I think Mm it'd be more problematic if say I was a member of the trans community and that's known, but that's not really like a passion area of mine. It's just something that I identify with. Um, That's not my experience. I can't speak to what that would um, be like in practice, but because I love serving the community, I actually, Love that my caseload is what it is. Um, okay. I do serve a lot of transgender, you know, students in different ways, and that's something that I really like. But as you read in my bio, I have a lot of things that I'm interested in. So it's, you you run some groups. Mm-hmm.
1: What is that experience like, and, um, and what was? How do you, how how do you navigate that and, and stay? I guess um, with self care for yourself.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. It's it's funny because uh, I actually identify very much as an introvert. So when I started my grad graduate training, I didn't think I was going to like group therapy all that much. But I actually, yeah. most people it. don't.
1: Most people are really, really, really hesitant to go towards the group route. Yeah.
0: Yes, yes, but I love group. It's my absolute favorite intervention. Um, I love group therapy, and I love training the next generation of mental health providers. Like those are my two favorite, absolute favorite things with my job. So. All right. All right. Um, so group actually gives me energy because I see I see things happening. Like I see people connecting with one another. I see people moving toward their goals in like pretty mm-hmm. realistic, important ways. So mm-hmm. as a group leader, I, I really encourage people, regardless of the group that I run, to have like very concrete and um, realistic goals each okay. for each semester. Mm-hmm. So, you know, speaking of trans issues, that could be like... Um, I don't know, working on your assertiveness, working on your boundaries, uh, practicing vulnerability with others. So like general things for people, but it could also be like, I want to use group as a means to help me like build relationships with other transgender people. I want to use group to help me build the confidence to come out to people. I want to use group to process like my future transition options. Like, okay. you know.
1: Do so like, specific- prefer open or closed run groups? I'm sorry? within that do you prefer open closed open or closed groups um and let me just explain to folks open groups yeah. are those that people can come in and out of so uh, you know one week you might have 5 people that are in there and then the next week you might get 5 new people in, in addition to it a closed group is a group that stays on top of this game and stays focused yeah. with the same number of people each each week
0: yeah uh, close groups with a caveat. So what I what I mean by that is um so, and this is true for any cr- group at CAPS where I work. Um, so when students agree to do group, they're committing to doing group for the semester. You know we okay. want people who are bought, bought in to do it. Um, for a lot of us, especially me with my groups, I want to serve as many members in my community as is feasible, as is realistic to do in a in a therapy group. Mm-hmm. so while they are closed and we do expect you know the people to come each week I try to leave them open in the semester for new people who are going to have that commitment who can start you mm-hmm. know kind of later on does that make sense
1: yeah it does it does I mean I know that sometimes it makes it difficult to get people up to speed but mm-hmm. it's really about relationship building and so if you feel that you're not going to harm the relationship that's already been built then you can bring someone in and of course you're asking the members if they're willing to have someone come in anyways. It's yeah. not like your decision by yourself to bring them in. So I, I get that. So we, I, I kind of said I would defer from talking about the medical side of the house, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of conversation around the fact that individuals who have transitions um, have a lot of uh, issues from the medical side uh, from doctors who are either ill equipped or maybe biased or or things along those lines. What what is your 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 thoughts on on people who are transgender who are having issues or not issues um, with the medical field?
0: Yeah. I have so many things I want to say for this question. So like I, I'm gonna back up for a second, then I'm going to get to the heart of your question um just just for the viewers to be up to speed. So like when we say transition, for me, that can look like a lot of different things. So like transition can be social, it can be physical. So I think that's the easiest way to kind of differentiate them. So social transition involves things like, you know, um, coming out to yourself and others, like uh, changing your name, changing your pronouns, trying out like a new gendered presentation with like your clothes, hairstyle, that sort of thing. Right. Um, physical transition then is like using hormones. So hormone replacement therapy, which can be like, you know, if you are assigned female at birth, uh, maybe taking testosterone, if you're assigned male at birth, um, that identifies a trans woman that would be, um, you know, taking a, a testosterone blocker and estrogen for instance. Okay. Yeah. Um, and kind of my caveat for all of this is just like knowing that some transgender people choose to, you know, socially transition, some don't. Some choose to physically transition, some don't. Some choose both. Like um, a person isn't more or less trans by the- um, By
1: whether they do that or not.
0: Exactly. So
1: So, so let me ask you really quickly, you may not know the answer to this, but physically, does taking the enhancements or those types of, um, I don't know what you would call it. I don't even know what you call it, fillers or whatever. Hormones. Hormones. Thank you. Yeah. Um, by, by doing that, is there a, a chance that um, you can do harm to your own physical body?
0: Um, I mean, it's going to create changes. I think that's just the way that I say it. it's going to be changing. Okay. And like with any medication, there is what we call risks and benefits. So, for okay. example, like any any medication that you take, there's going to be things that it could do. Like it could raise your blood pressure, for instance. Like that's... Okay. So that same is going to be true for HRT. Um, like there are like, you know, possible ones. Like, for example, if you start taking testosterone, you're at higher risk for high blood pressure. Or Like that's a common one.
1: So it's really, um, being t- you have to be very intentional about paying attention to your own yeah. health.
0: Yeah. But in general, I do want to point out that most people... Uh, see the benefits of taking uh, those who choose to take hormones. The benefits extremely outweigh uh, the costs or the risks. So, like, oh, yes. that's, okay, that's, okay.
2: Um,
1: and, and so, I can imagine that when people are seeking out doctors, they they also look at do the same thing that they would do if they were seeking out a counselor or whatever have you mm-hmm. to find out that they're affirming. Have you, in the areas that you've lived in, found it easy to find medical professionals who, uh, who you feel will affirm you and, 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 and actually get to know who you are before they dismiss you or, or don't provide you with the type of services that you need mm-hmm. as, a, as a patient?
0: In my experience, it's actually been very difficult to find um, what I would consider um, competent um, uh, transgender care providers, and I don't even mean expert. I mean competent.
2: Mm-hmm. So that
0: it, that is important to to know. And like, um, for my agency as a whole, like something that we try to do is like we put a lot of time in terms of um, like connecting people to resources. So for instance, if like finding a medical provider, or finding <coughs> or finding like a community. Mental health therapist is something that's difficult for you, whether you're part of the trans community or not. That's something that we can help with. And, you know, just based on my own personal experiences, I definitely see the value in that. Something that you had mentioned earlier, just about the medical field as a whole. Yes, I think there are lots of gaps in terms of the medical field. So, you know, I think, you know, I very much support a call to action for the medical community as a whole to like be more trans knowledgeable. Um, because I think that there's many instances that I know of where the medical community has done more harm than good, which is unfortunate. Um, an organization that I really just need to put out there is called WPATH. Um, so uh, if you're not familiar, that's the World Professional Association for Transgender Health.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so WPATH sets the standards of care that all healthcare providers, whether it's physical health, mental health, anyone in the healthcare community, is meant to follow in order okay. to competently serve transgender people.
2: Okay. So there's a
0: really cool guide that you can look up yourself that is those standards of care. So it's the things that the com- the medical community is meant to follow. Um, a couple of highlights in that are like um, the standards of how to support a transgender person who is seeking, say, taking hormone replacement therapy or is seeking surgery. So. Um, For instance, there's a lot of um, misinformation that exists on, like, what a transgender person needs or needs to do to start taking hormone replacement therapy, and that goes back to some antiquated laws about, you know, you need to be in, like, therapy for this number of months or this number of years. Um, So if you're listening to this and you're part of the community, know that I highly recommend that you know your resources and that you know, like... um, know the policies yourself. So you can look them up or get some education about them. Um, It's important to know that. Um, But when it comes to hormones, there is no timeline that a person needs to have been in therapy to take hormone replacement therapy. It's an informed consent model. So basically you'll review, review risks and benefits to taking hormones with your provider. Um, you do have some sort of a relationship with this person that's ongoing and then you know, you are able to fully consent to treatment. That's so,
1: simultaneously which I know back in the day you had to get a consent from a um, from a counselor or, or a psychologist or a psychiatrist or whatever have you. Is that still part of the um in order to to kind of um, embark upon those yeah. those changes? Um,
0: The answer to that is yes and no. So technically you do not need a letter of support to start hormone replacement therapy. Um, But your options if you went that route are very limited. So for instance, Planned Parenthood um, is an agency that you can go, they have their own informed consent model. Um, You could schedule an appointment with a provider there, do an assessment, they'll check, do some blood work with you which is pretty standard. Um, And then you could theoretically start HRT without any letter of support the issue that comes up is most endocrinologists, like most medical providers who would be prescribing um, uh, hormones, like say outside of a Planned Parenthood, will require a letter of support. So technically, like legally, you do not need one. In practice, it's more beneficial to have one. Um, Because for instance, say you're just being seen at Planned Parenthood, but you decide to change medical providers and well, now this person's requiring a letter. Now you have to backtrack and you know, find a therapist or find a healthcare provider who will rate you one.
1: Nice, okay. Well, thank you for sharing all that. And uh, let me ask if there anything that you feel that we haven't necessarily covered because we actually, this has flown by.
0: Yeah, I'm actually surprised at how quick it's gone.
1: It has gone by absolutely quick. Like you said, there's a whole lot of things and there's more that we can talk about in an hour's time, which we know that already but is there anything that we haven't talked about that you feel that might be important for the people who are listening in to hear?
0: Um, I think I hit on a lot of the themes that I had most wanted to address. I'd say overall, like um, if you are not a part of the community, I wanna like um, express again, the importance of being an ally, being someone who's supportive and who listens. That's a word I wanna
1: actually, I read that and I was gonna ask you specifically about that. what do you think about the term co-conspirator?
0: I do not know. <laughs> Can you give me some more context? Well, you know,
1: I think about the word ally. And mm-hmm. I find that sometimes allies sit on the sideline. Yeah. And so they're your friends and stuff like that. And they go, Oh, I support you, but they don't do anything, mm-hmm. right? Co-conspirators okay. are people who are like there with you, in the room with you, and in, in the room when you're not in the room.
0: I I see that now for you. I see that now. And actually, so like the allyship trainings that I give the, the metaphor that I use for like a true ally is like running on a treadmill. Um, Because if you don't do anything, what happens? Not only do things not get better, but things get worse. You're going to go flying off. So to be an ally to really call yourself an ally, I think it actually takes intentional effort. Um, So for instance, um, I have a number of friends who would be willing if someone like you know said something like pretty bad to me mean or even messed up my pronouns would be willing to speak up so be someone being willing to engage in dialogues um something else that I'll point out that is really like kind of unfortunate but it's it's the truth of why allyship is an important like you know, I'm a professional, I'm in the, I'm in the mental health field and I specifically work with transgender populations, but there are many instances that I can point to where people have literally refused to like, listen to what I have to say on like transgender matters, citing that, you know, I just am a biased opinion, you know, oh, this is okay. self-serving, you know, mm-hmm. um, which really says a lot considering like all the time and effort that I put into like knowing this material.
1: Um, well so, yeah, you get you get dinged for being a person who's educated and it's like, wait a minute.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so it really speaks to though the importance of being an ally because there are times where unfortunately my voice in this matter won't matter as much as right. yours, even though you're not a part of the community.
2: Understood.
0: So being willing to speak up and actively do something I think is very important.
1: Very cool. So let's 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 take this to another level and, and move away from this talk, but where,
0: where did you grow up? I actually grew up in rural Vermont. And what was life like for you in rural Vermont? Life was interesting. So I grew up in like a very small community, um, a community I call it like a culture of sameness where there, there's some haves there, but it's very much a have not community. So I grew up in like a very rural community, a very impoverished community, um, a community that like, most of the people I knew did not have much of an education. So, you know, part of my experience, I'm, you know, my parents didn't finish high school and I'm the first person in my family to go to college, like let alone get a doctorate. So like, um, life feels and moves very differently there in a way it feels very sleepy and slower, you could say. So you finally got to Tennessee, Mm -hmm.
1: you chose that location to go to school um what so knoxville yep and now so that means that i don't know how long ago did you did you finish up i finished in 2016. so you know of sean spurgeon and some others who are under the faculty there right is that, is that
0: not in my program specifically oh, so, okay
1: okay so I, they were in the counselor education program that's right you were in the mm-hmm. clinical psychology program yep. all right My bad. my not bad fine. So yeah, that's some colleagues I know who are in counseling Mm -hmm. uh, there that Mm -hmm. that do that work. So um, what led you to the field that you're in?
0: Yeah, yeah. So honestly, until I finished like 11th grade, I didn't put much thought into going to college. And that is weird to say because like I was always very smart. I studied a lot. I did not have a lot of friends growing up. and I found like books and education as like a retreat for me. So I would spend like all of my- and on top of
1: that, you're introverted. So of like doing
0: Homework, yeah. Yeah. So I kid you not, like I thought to go to college at the end of my junior year. And at that point I was taking AP history and it was my AP history teacher who was the first person to directly tell me that I should go to college. I had not had that experience in my life until then. Wow. And it was because my final paper for his class was I had to write my first ever 15-page paper on any subject I wanted. And I wrote it on like a social justice and human rights-focused topic. The question, and I still have this paper, but was, is America truly the land of opportunities for people? That was the and question.
1: so let me ask you a question. What's your elevator speech on that? Is it?
0: In a way. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> You don't, not want, in the way to, you don't want to commit? Is. Come on, give me an answer, man. I would say no. <laughs> I would say no, uh, and I had the same thought when you know I was uh, seventeen years old. So I guess that's something. But well, maybe um, maybe. you know, I didn't know what I was going to study. So, um, and research pretty clearly shows that people who are first-gen college students tend to gravitate toward degrees that are more practical. Mm -hmm. Um, or they have a direct application. So for instance, I was originally like a pre-law major. I considered going into human rights law. And part of my experience was I came out as part of a member member of the LGBTQ plus community at a very young age, you know, when I was 15. So I had that experience of feeling like I didn't fit in very, very directly and being told that. It's like, that's where the human rights law piece came in. But I quickly realized that it's probably not the right path for me. Um, when I found some other programs. So I actually majored in undergrad in psychology, sociology, and anthropology. So a really great blend of how like mind works yeah. and how people function, how systems impact people and the impact of culture on life. Wow. Um, and then why Tennessee specifically is because um, Tennessee has a very unique program. Um, at the time that I went there, I can't guarantee that this is still the case, but at the time that I went there, it was the only APA accredited PhD program in counseling psychology that had a specialization in social justice. Okay. Is that what Dawn Szymanski is? Yep.
1: I used to work with her.
0: Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I adore Dawn. So Dawn was not my advisor, but she was on my dissertation committee.
1: I had to reach out. I need to reach out. Um, we work together at the University of Missouri St. Louis.
0: Oh, that's great. Yes. Dawn is amazing if I did not have the advisor that I had, she would have been my advisor. Ah, uh, ah,
1: Very cool, very cool. Well, Well, I wanna thank you so much for being a part of the conversation today.
0: Yeah, thank you. This was was really nice.
1: Good, good, good. And then we're gonna figure out how to uh, also figure out how we can kind of increase the ante on what we're doing out of Office Diversity and Inclusion when it comes to trans work and trans programming. So don't be surprised.
0: Yes, that'd be amazing. That'd be amazing. Thank
1: you. So I wanna thank you again. Uh, we're gonna hopefully have a podcast on, on, on this coming Friday. I apologize to you personally for um, being a little late into today's um, podcast, but uh, I'm glad that you were able to accommodate us in terms of time.
0: Oh yeah, Yeah. no worries.
1: Stay here for the conversation and we'll have to revisit it again.
0: Yes, that would be great. Thank you so much.
1: No worries, no worries. So thank you. And uh, we'll see you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to our show. This has been Matters of Diversity with Dr. B.